You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So it's been a sporadic summer so far, and we haven't been able to get as many podcasts out as we had hoped. But um, here and there, I've been able to interview some folks that I've really wanted to interview. And one of those interviews happened on Friday evening. And if you're at all familiar with labor relations, you've probably heard the, the name, the National Right to Work Foundation. And if you're on the union side, they're the big enemy. If you're on the employer side, you may not really know what they're all about. However, as we've been posting articles throughout the weeks, um, and actually the months, but we have posted here and there some articles from the National Right to Work Foundation when they've got cases going on. And a couple of those articles a few weeks ago kind of intrigued me and I wanted to reach out to the National Right to Work Foundation and find out more about what the topic was. So it took a little while to arrange this interview, but on Friday evening, I was able to connect with Mark Mix, who's the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. And he also serves as president of the National Right to Work Committee, which is a 2.8 million member public policy organization. So we had a a wide-ranging conversation, um, and I know it's Tuesday as this is going up, so I just wanted to kind of touch base and let you know that we're going to continue as I'm traveling to post episodes when I can arrange the guests. In any case, here's Mark Mix from the National Right to Work Foundation. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Mark Mix, thank you for joining Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? Peter, I'm doing great, and what a privilege to be on with you and and talk about labor policy and labor news. You know, I know you love the the issue, and so do I. So let's have at it. It's it is a fascinating time, and I, everybody I talk to is just fascinating. Some people are freaking out, but it, I, I'm just marveling at it. Yeah, indeed. There is a lot going on. And, you know, labor law has never been one of those marquee issues when you talk about public policy. But what we're learning and what you've known for a long time is that it has tremendous impact on the economy, on public policy and on people's lives, frankly, whether you be, you know, pro-union, so-called anti-union, forced unionism or voluntary unionism. The impact is becoming more of a of a front page story, um, and and you've been following it for all these years, and I've been following it for all these years, and we know the impact it has on people's lives. And uh, but now I think we're when as we read about it on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, people are kind of paying attention to it now, and certainly a new generation of employees are thinking long and hard and making decisions about uh, about labor policy and specifically unionization as we read the headlines, uh, not only from those big media outlets, but also your outlet, Na- Labor News Report, Peter. So thanks for that. Yeah. Well, let's so let's kind of go down that path in a second. But before we do that, let's explain for the listeners or, or you explain for the listeners, what is the National Right to Work Foundation? Because I know you're yeah. hated on one side of the aisle, so to speak. <laughs> Well, 
Yeah, Peter, you know, uh, yeah, there's a lot of folks out there that have a lot invested in forced unionism that goes back to the 1930s. But the foundation is really, the, the idea is real simple. Our mission is really simple. We've been around since 1968, and we provide free legal services to employees whose rights have been violated by compulsory forced unionism agreements. And as you know, and we can talk a little bit about it, both from a 30,000-foot level and from a 5-foot level if you want to, but, you know, basically policy in the United States, labor policy going back to the Roosevelt administration, says that union officials can demand that workers be fired if they don't, if, well, then it said if you, if you weren't a member of a union or you didn't pay full dues to a union, that's changed over the years. But the foundation's mission has been to provide legal services to employees. And, you know, union officials hate that, Peter, because we're representing the very people they claim to represent who are having a problem with this forced unionism regime that's supported by federal law. And so we have 22 staff lawyers that do nothing but help employees work their way through kind of this uh, labyrinth, if you will, of labor policy that can be very confusing. And, and I know you're an expert in it, and uh, I will claim to be, but, uh, but we've got 22 lawyers that are more expert in it than I am. I'm not a lawyer, Peter, but it's been a real privilege working on behalf of individual employees as they try to navigate labor policy in the United States as it relates to specifically to unionization and the federal and state laws that basically control the workplace in many situations. And helping them do that has been really rewarding and honoring. And, and uh, we've argued 18 cases in the U.S. Supreme Court on behalf of individual employees. We've won some major precedents. In fact, in the last, what, 15 years, I guess we've uh, We've won past five new right-to-work laws using the right-to-work committee and won five Supreme Court or argued and won five Supreme Court decisions at the United States Supreme Court. So that's our mission, helping employees every day. At any given time, we have about 250 cases that we're working at the National Labor Relations Board, in federal court, or in state court sometimes local court, as it relates to helping employees work their way through this process. So let me ask you, do you do much public sector or is it almost exclusively private sector? Actually, Peter, it's probably, I would say, 50% either now. Um, okay. It's kind of a split. Just like union membership in, at the AFL-CIO is 50% government employees and 50% private sector employees, our litigation on behalf of individual employees um, is probably e almost equally divided. But it used to be the private sector was dominant. But now as we've seen a shift toward government unionization, uh, so the issues that are involved there are are just as, uh, just as important, and we – you know, we litigate lots on behalf of teachers, and and uh, sometimes we litigate on employees that are that are deemed to be public employees but aren't, like our Harris case where we won on behalf of home health care providers who were having their 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 money skimmed by the unions uh, to for union dues and fees. Uh, but yeah, it's probably 50-50 and maybe maybe 55-45. Still, private sector uh, is probably the leader, but at any given time, it's pretty equally divided. So. Um... Now, in the let's just separate this a little bit. So, public sector, government, government workers, government unions—they're almost exclusively. I think it's fifty states are all what we would normally consider as a right-to-work state. Now, is that correct? Under Janus. Yeah, it 
Yep, actually, for for from a standpoint of of forced fees to work for your government, that is that is now illegal under the 2018, the June 28th, uh, June 27th, 2018 Supreme Court case called Janus v. Ashme, which we litigated. The National Right to Work Foundation attorneys argued that case at the U.S. Supreme Court, working with the uh, Liberty Justice Center, who found Mark Janus, the client. There were two other clients in the case originally. One retired, and then one was got a uh, an accommodation. So Mark Janus was the plaintiff left. And so uh, Bill Messenger, who's been an attorney for the Right to Work Foundation for 20 years, who's argued three cases, three U.S. Supreme Court cases in the last, what, eight years, argued the Janus case and won that case in 2018. And what it said very simply, Peter, two things. One, no government employee anywhere in America at any level, whether it's the dog catcher, the firefighter, the teacher, whoever it is, cannot be fired from their job if they don't pay dues or fees to a government union official. It also said that it, before any money can be taken from any government employee anywhere in America, there has to be a, an affirmative waiver of First Amendment rights before any money can be collected. And Peter, you won't be surprised that uh, the unions have kind of screwed all that up and messed it up, and, and that authorization probably doesn't exist in most cases, but that's why we're litigating. At any given time right now, I think there's probably – what, 60 cases dealing with the enforcement of the Janus decision that are still ongoing today. A good chunk of those cases are ours. There's some other litigation groups that are involved doing it. There are some private litigators involved in Janus litigation right now. But um, suffice to say, we still have a fight. But to your point, the Supreme Court has said that it's a violation of the First Amendment of the United States Constitution for a government employee to be forced to pay anything to a union in order to work for government. Now, that includes teachers and and at the state level, if they are employed under a, well, let's, let's not use teachers, but any public sector worker, for example, you mentioned dog catchers, if they're at a state that has a state labor relations law, PERB, if it's in Pennsylvania, for right. example, that would apply to them as well, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, there are some there are states that still have the monopoly bargaining laws in place, Peter. And this is really an important discussion when you talk about forced unionism. Really, the foundation of forced unionism is this exclusive monopoly bargaining privilege that union officials have that was granted back in the 1930s. And many states going back to 1959, Wisconsin, the first state to basically formally recognize they, they took the private sector labor law and they basically converted the private sector labor law into public sector labor law. It's very similar. Most state labor laws are very similar to the National Labor Relations Act, the original Wagner Act, and Taft-Hartley. So they still have monopoly bargaining, but they can't have forced fees. Now, interestingly enough, um, you know, when the when the Supreme Court says it's a violation of the First Amendment of the constitutional rights to force someone to pay union dues or fees, that doesn't apply to private sector workers yet. We're working on that, Peter. Mm -hmm. But uh, right now. Any public employee who's under a public employee relations board, whether it be in California, New York, whether it be in Washington State or Florida, they cannot be compelled to pay dues or fees to a union if they're a government employee, a public sector employee anywhere in America today. So let me let me go to another branch um, and and then we'll go back to right to work in the 27 states. Um, okay. So in the private sector, there's you also have airline and railway railway employees that are not covered by the National Labor Relations Act. So in, and let me just make sure that we're, we're clarifying this for the listeners. So they are private sector workers, but they're not covered by the National Labor Relations Act. They're covered by the Railway Labor Act. They don't have right to work status at all, right? 
That's correct. In all 50 states, if you're in one of the 27 states that have passed a right to work law up to this moment, um, and you're a railway, you're covered by the Railway Labor Act, the right to work law in the state does not apply to you. In fact, we're litigating a case right now in Texas. Our lawyers will be arguing in the Fifth Circuit, I think it's the uh, Central District of Dallas, of Texas, federal court, starting this Tuesday on behalf of a Southwest Airlines employee flight attendant who was fired from her job. She lives in Texas, which is a right-to-work state, but because the union officials got really mad at her for exercising her First Amendment rights, she was fired. Southwest supported that firing. We're litigating a case now. We're in our fourth or fifth year of this, and the judge threw out the summary, ju summary judgment motions by the union and by the airline and said, we're going to trial. So there's already a schedule for, I think, what it's going to be almost, I think, a 10-day trial in Texas, in Dallas, Texas, this coming week about an employee who is, lives in a right-to-work state but unfortunately is covered by the Railway Labor Act, which basically still allows union officials to have them fired if they don't tender dues or fees. So that, yeah, for, so for the listeners, if, if you live in a right-to-work state and say, for example, work for American Airlines as a gate agent, ticket agent, whatever, reservations agent, then you can be required to pay union fees as a condition of employment or get fired. That's, that's the current status of the law. That's correct. That's yeah. exactly right. Yep. So then moving on to the rest of the world that's that's in the private sector, um, we currently have, and I always go to your, your website just to make sure, you know, nothing's changed, but we have currently 27 right-to-work states and 23 non-right-to-work states or states without right-to-work laws. And one of the big, and let me just mention this, Mark, because I've found this over the years of, of working with people, people confuse right to work with employment at, at will. Yeah, and, absolutely. And union officials thrive on that argument. You know, you can be fired at any time for any reason on a right to work state. Right. But there are 11 states, there are 11 states that are at will employment states that are not right to work states. And so the same thing can happen to you there. I mean, it's uh, it, at will employment is is not right to work. That is a totally different branch of labor policy. But yet union officials are very effective in using that that basic term of, yeah, you can be fired at will in a right-to-work state um, very effectively to, to kind of scare people. But you're absolutely right. And thank you for bringing that up, Peter. That's an important point. Well, and it's and what happens is, and there's just a big confusion about what employment at will is. And, and you know, employment at will back in the 1700s when it was developed, you know, it was basically old English common law. But when the fact of the matter is in most state, well, in most industries like people are not fired at will sometimes you'll hear about something but it's like there's so many laws now that protect the workers that weren't around 100 years ago that um yeah unions will use that oh without a union contract you can be fired at will I'm like, eh, not really um <laughs> so on the right to work and i think you know this about me i'm a former union rep in a right to work yep. state um yep. so the easiest way i guess i could explain it is that you have the right to work at a unionized employer without being forced to pay a union as a condition of employment. And that's all that means. Yeah. It's and, that simple. It yeah. really is. And yep. I mean, I've had this and I see the union argument having been a union rep, but the reality is um, I, I've always been of the belief that if a union is a service then, and you're in a right to work situation, it just promotes you to be better at your service to get more customers coming in, 
right? Which are your union members. And I, I exactly, yeah, exactly. Gary Castile, the uh, the organizer at the UAW plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee, the Volkswagen plant, mm-hmm. actually made a made a comment about that. He, he said exactly what you said, Peter. I'm glad to organize in right to work states because we have to go out and sell our product. Linda Chavez Thompson, the former secretary treasurer of the AFL-CIO, said, you know, when we passed right to work law, I think it was in Indiana. She said, well, I guess we're just going to have to learn how to sell our product to workers. And we said, amen to you, Linda Chavez Thompson. That's exactly the point. That you know? name is a blast from the past. I haven't heard that in a while. Yeah, but that's what it is. Yeah. And I think yeah. Samuel Gompers was the same way. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you remember, of, of all the people that I get to talk to, you remember his final speech in El Paso, Texas in 1924. Yep. He was, I think he was, he may have been week, too weak to actually give the speech himself, but someone gave it at that final, his final convention, and he talked about how he'd been kind of the pre- pre- predominant leader of this. He'd been involved with AFL his entire career. He was the granddaddy of the labor movement, and he stood at the podium knowing that the delegates of the AFL were going to go to Congress and try to get the 1926 Railway Labor Act. They were interested in, you know, organizing the railroads, and hmm. and he got wind of this notion they were going to go to government for their power. They actually wanted to get the government to grant them the power to organize, and and boy, oh boy, uh, it worked out for them in the 1930s and the 1940s for sure. But he said the workers of America adhere to voluntary institutions. Anything else is a menace to their rights. And will destroy that which brought together through voluntarism is inherently stronger than anything that can be cobbled together through compulsion. And his message is very simple. The moment you go to government for your power, you're going to lose sight of the shop floor, you're going to lose sight of the worker, and you're going to spend $12 billion every 12 years on politics. Or every two years, excuse me, on politics because... Your power is granted by government, and what the government gives, the government can take away. And boy, oh boy, that's why you've got to be involved in Sacramento and Tallahassee and Washington, D.C. and Albany, New York and Springfield, Illinois. And you've got to play politics at the highest levels because your power is a resident or is a grant from government. And that changed the union movement completely. And Gompers is right. It's going to destroy the union movement unless they give it up and go back to voluntary unionism and start selling services to workers. Yeah, try having that conversation today. <laughs> I, I've been saying this for years, It's and I, I summarize. I did not know that the Gomper speech was um, in reaction to the potential Railway Labor Act. I did not know the history of that. But well, I, I, I think the timing, the timing's relevant, Peter. I can't, I can't confirm it because I wasn't there at second hand. But in reading the speech and knowing the timeline, the, his final speech in 1924, and then the major push in 1926 for the RLA um, was, I mean, the, the, the timing was interesting, and, and the delegates were starting to get political at that time. Yeah. And I think that's what Gompers was warning them about. Well, and... And so what it, what he was basically forecasting with the what the government can grant that can also take away was the pendulum swing that happens every four or eight years, and not to mention the, you know, from 1935 to 1947, and then the pendulum swinging back in 47. And it's, you know, he was accurate, but try convincing today's union leaders that. Yeah, Peter, and that's really hard to do. You know, I, I don't know if you know this about me. I grew up in a union household, too. My my stepfather was a 32-year member of the Machinist Union. I am. We walked the picket line with him in 1976 in a western New York uh, industrial plant parking lot, and my mom washed dishes in the school's cafeteria uh, Was out when I was growing up. She had to be a member of the civil service. Well, she had to pay dues to the Civil Service Employment uh, Age Association in New York State. 
My brother was a, uh, was a compelled uh, dues-fee-paying member of the, of the American Federation of Teachers. He's a school teacher, just retired last week after 31 years of teaching in a government school system. I mean, so union blood coursed through my veins. I worked at a, at a manufacturing ceramic plant, midnight to eight shift while I was in college. Wasn't a union plant. It was my, 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 one of my best friend's father's ceramic plant. But look, I, I get it. And, and I know these union officials are, are lazy and they rely on government action. And, that, and I say that not about the local people, because what I found, and what and talk, we've talked with, like you, Peter, we talked with thousands of union members. One of the first things we do when we take an intake on a case, we ask a series of questions of who's calling. You know, how much are your union dues? How'd you get in? What's your thought about your local union leadership? And there are some great stories about union leaders at the local level doing great things for employees. It's the people in these stone granite ivory buildings in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and in the state capitals, their lobbying teams, they're where the problem is. And the disconnect, and you know this better than anyone, Peter, the disconnect between rank-and-file workers and the so-called leadership of the big unions in America is growing wider and wider and wider. Ask an operating engineer that was working on the Keystone Pipeline how he feels about the, the AFL, the union affiliate, the international union, endorsing Joe Biden, even though Joe Biden said he was going to stop the Keystone Pipeline, which he did seven days into his administration. How do you answer that rank-and-file union member that's been a guy for – been a union member paying dues for 25 years, feeding his family, and the next thing you know, the president that his union endorsed put him on the unemployment line? Uh, I'll tell you uh, that it brings up so many different things. One of the reasons I left the union movement, and I share this once in a while, but you know, I was I was in the union movement for eight years. Was getting my degree in labor relations. My graduating paper in uh, for labor relations for for my BA was the decline of unions and what they needed to do to come back. And I used uh, mostly union sources on the decline and the causal factors. And what I found is. And I used AFL-CIO white papers from the 80s, it was 83 and 86. And the more I researched that, um, I've realized that the people at the top were just BSing everybody. And they knew the decline, the causal factors, and they're blowing smoke up up basically everybody in America's butts in terms of, of what was really causing it. And I realized if the AFL-CIO Executive Council is putting out a paper like this, which is full of misinformation the whole movement's been corrupted and you know we had been out on strike of you know thinking we're going to do stuff and they already knew it was going to fall you know and it's it's just one of those things is like the last straw that broke the camel's back it's like well if i want to help workers i need to do it from the other side and that's how i got into what i do so let me stay on this for a second with regard to how out of touch they are um, and I don't want to get into politics and stuff, but it's been occurring to me over the last couple of weeks since uh, the Dobbs case got overturned or the Dobbs decision, Roe v. Wade. And I've seen all of these union leaders coming out with their press releases. And again, I'm thinking from a purely pragmatic level, you've got about 40, maybe 45% of your membership across America that does not feel hard left. Right. They're not they're not Democrats. They're usually Republicans. And you've got your leaders. And this isn't to get into, you know, pro-abortion, pro-choice, vice versa. It's really just like if you're a business leader and you're alienating 40 percent of your population on either side, I would think that would be problematic. It's just something I've been thinking about. 
<laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. And that is that late, you know, those social policy issues. And, and you're right. We don't even need to talk about a specific social policy issue. We just need to look at where the radical, the radical, and I call them regressives because they're not progressing. They're driving back. And when you, when you look at the, the, the kind of the, the roster of who's supporting this radical agenda that is really contrary to most private sector union members' beliefs and and their livelihoods, frankly. I mean, if you're like, just go back to the energy business. I mean, if you were working on a federal land doing drilling and exploration and and uh, you know energy production, what are you thinking now? Um, but yeah, why they right. have to be I, out there on these the whole green is crazy. Yeah, the green, the green New Deal stuff. You know, you've got all these leaders in D.C. signing on to it, knowing that it's going to cost their members jobs. Well, we're going to transition them to other types of jobs. Well, that doesn't help the guy on the pipeline, to use your example. Yeah, um, they need to get out of the politics. And, and I, I think we've had this discussion and touched on it with, with Gomper's speech and kind of the mm -hmm. whole movement from voluntary unionism to grant government privilege granted to union officials and what it meant to them. I mean, there's no better example than the passage of, of you know, the 1933 National Industrial Recovery Act is over, is, is passed and, and ruled unconstitutional. Then the switch in time saves nine. You know, the Chief Justice Hughes and Owen Roberts switched their votes and the, the Jones Laughlin Steel case is decided. And Peter, you know this history better than I do. I mean, the union movement quadrupled because the federal government said, okay, here's your new grant of privilege. And we saw the we saw it right at the tail end of World War II. We saw what the equivalent of almost four million workers across the country on strike at any given time in the coal mines and the automotive industry. And you know, you come back in the 1946 elections, and I think you know, while Truman vetoed the Taft-Hartley Act, I think he knew it was a fait accompli. And frankly, if you could be in on the fly on the wall in the White House in the Oval Office at the time, he said, you know what, I'm going to veto it because the union guys want me to. But I think it's good policy because we way overshot when we gave, when we passed Wagner and gave them all the power, basically one side of the scale. And that power, the resident power there is that forced unionism. And boy, oh boy, uh, what a great business model if you can get it. Um, you know, I think there should only be one Zoom uh, podcast in America. It should be yours, Peter. And we'll get we'll get the <laughs> right. government to grant it that you're the only people they can listen to. And you don't have to care about what you say or how good it is or how entertaining you are. You just put it up every day and say a few things. And by golly, everyone subscribes for 100 bucks, which I recommend. It's voluntary right now, which I like. I'm a subscriber, Peter. I wanted to tell you that to your, to your website. <laughs> well, thank your you. Substack. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. So so let me um, let me touch on something more current, and this was a press release, um, and this is based on an NLRB announcement on the rulemaking um, to block decertification elections, or it's basically to trap. And this goes to again government power. Um, gov the The National Labor Relations Board is making it much easier for unions to get workers into unions but it looks like they're making it harder for them to get out. Yeah, absolutely. And they are, they are, I mean, they, Jennifer Abruzzo, who is the new general counsel, um, you know, I, Peter, you probably told the story on, on, a, on a previous podcast and I try to listen when I can, but I don't know if I've, I've heard you talk about this, you know, 23 minutes into the administration as, as the echoes of amazing grace from Garth Brooks were, rec were <laughs> reflecting back to the stage of the inauguration, an email went out to Peter Robb saying either resign or be fired by five o'clock today. 
This is opening right. day of the Biden administration. And he said, well, I'm, a, I'm got 10 and a half months left on my, on my term. It's an independent agency. I'm the chief legal counsel. I don't think it's healthy that we go down this road. And uh, sure enough, at five o'clock, he got the you are fired memo. And then the next day, his deputy assistant to general counsel, who, who became acting, got the same email saying, resign by five o'clock or be fired. She decided she would say she'd stick around and she ended up at 501. She was fired. Then they get this guy from Chicago, Peter Orr, that comes in. But it was all set up, Peter. And I will say this about organized labor and, well, specifically union officials. They are really, really good at long-term planning. I mean, they, this was all in the works going right into, you know, January 6th and, and mm-hmm. the election day and January 20th inauguration day. They had this all set up. And Jennifer Abruzzo was the pick. She was acting at the end of Griffin's uh, term back at the end of Obama, if you remember. She yeah. got into acting GC and did a stint at the Communication Workers of America Union as their general counsel or associate general counsel, and then had, what, I think 20 to 25 years of NLRB action. So she knew how the process worked. And as she started unfolding her her ideas about what was happening, union officials got up, and a couple of them said, she's going farther than we even asked. And one of the things she's doing is to radically change the way unions, well, individual employees who, who disagree with their union leadership um, and I use that term in finger quotes, leadership, that want to get out. I mean, Peter, how many times, and I'm asking a question I don't know the answer to, maybe hopefully you do, how many times has an unfair labor practice blocked a certification election? Not so much on the certification side, almost all the time with decertification. Exactly, exactly. So so who files blocking charges on a certification vote? I mean, nobody. The union's not going to file one, but when, when, the union, when the employees are trying to get rid of the union, what's the first thing that a union organizer and a union official will do? Yeah, they file the, the blocking charge, typically alleging file the company. the unfair labor practice charge. Right. That's right. And whether it has anything to do with the actual decertification or not, it's automatic standard operating procedure. We won a case back in 2007, a case called Dana, that basically said – and this, was, this is a little bit of an expansion – you know, Peter, that one of the most effective tools of union organizers today is the corporate campaign. Mm-hmm. The corporate campaign is Mike Fishman, I think, former SEIU union boss, said is a, it's death by a thousand cuts. They attack from every direction, your banker, your clients, your workers, their wives, the church, whatever it is, whatever they can find that can put pressure on an employer to agree to make the phone call to the union organizer saying, hey, Peter, look, I know you're out there talking to my employees. What have we got to do to make all this pressure go away? And the union guy says, well, there's a couple things. You can accept the cards that I'm going to bring to you with 50% plus one of, the, of your workers signing. You can accept them and we'll immediately start bargaining. Or you can agree to a neutrality clause which says you'll sit down, shut up, close your mouth, not say anything about unionization. And when we get the votes we need, you accept the cards or you accept the vote and we, we been, begin to bargain. Well, one of, the part, one of the elements that came out of that was card check. The neutrality agreement would say, look, you'll agree to accept the cards if we get them, and you'll be neutral. The Dana case went just like that. Dana agreed to a neutrality agreement that covered several other plants, and one of the plants we represented an employee. And what we argued was that this neutrality agreement is a thing of value. It's a violation of 302. It's the employer giving the union something of value. It may not be monetary, and it's actually we got to argue a case in 2000, I think it was 2013, called Mulhall. It came out of the 11th Circuit where we argued it, and the judge dismissed, struck down the summary judgment by the union saying, we're going to proceed because we think there's a thing of value going on here, which is a violation of Section 302. But I, I won't get into the minutiae of it. But anyway, so this neutrality agreement leads to car checks. We argued that 
that these workers ought to get a chance to have a secret ballot election after the union has been certified by a card check. And the NLRB agreed with us and said, you're right. Within 45 days after certification, employees can ask for a secret ballot election to basically vote whether or not they want to be in the union. And Dana went into effect, and, and there were elections. There were Dana elections that occurred. I think several dozen Dana elections occurred after card check, and workers in some cases voted against the unionization. But the, you know, this was already after the cards had been signed and how, by whatever means. Well, that immediately upon Obama coming into office, Dana went away. When Trump came back in, Dana came, stopped enforcing Dana again, because what they want is they want card check unionization. They don't want the employer to be involved at all. They're going to try to make captive audience speeches or inform information meetings about unionization by an employer illegal. Going back to the Joy Silk doctrine that says, you know. Employers have to have good faith doubt about you know any reason why they people wouldn't join unions. It's gone crazy, and it is on steroids right now about what's happening. And so, what we let me let me ask you a question about Dana before we move off of Dana. Don, um, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Peter. I'm sorry. There's, there's yep. We're having a little bit of internet issue. I think um, there is a case that was involving Dana. Um, and I want to say it was about 2011 that and it was combined with neutrality card check that was involving pre-recognitional bargaining. Do you recall that at all? It was basically uh, under the Obama board. Uh, and I think Craig Becker was involved in writing the decision <laughs> on it. Yeah. And it, it was the Obama board approving pre-recognition, pre-recognitional bargaining in exchange for card check neutrality basically was it johnson controls it might have it, been johnson yes controls. that sounds familiar yeah. i thought it was a dana case but it yeah. when i saw that and I, I was flabbergasted because essentially what that was and i believe it is still current that an employer a union wants to unionize a group of employees they can go to the employer and say you know, we want to unionize your employees. We want you to stay neutral. We want you to agree to card check. And the employer can say, okay, well, if I do that, what can I get out of it? <laughs> well, we'll, we'll agree to a, a very easy contract, right? We'll, we'll, we won't raise your labor costs. We won't, you know, we won't force this and we won't strike and all this other stuff, basically selling the employees out. And I'm going to bring this full circle in a second. So you mentioned this earlier. And they sell the employees out in exchange for card check and, and neutrality. And then, so that was, I want to say 2011. And then this happened literally uh, 2014 at Volkswagen in Chattanooga. Gary, as you mentioned, Gary Castile a little while ago. And I believe they did that pre-recognitional bargaining with Volkswagen to unionize the plant in Chattanooga. And basically had said in their pre-recognitional bargaining, they agreed to keep the labor costs low. I'm yes. summarizing that. <laughs> you remember that? I do. I do. And, you know, we ended up representing employees at the Volkswagen plant down there. And mm -hmm. we used, it was interesting, Peter, because, you know, the union came to Volkswagen management and they said, we have the cards and we want you to recognize union. And I think if it had been up to the European union officials or the leadership of the company of Volkswagen in Germany, they would have, they, I think they already said, yeah, well, why wouldn't we? I mean, we do it here. You're on our board of directors, for goodness sakes, um, you know, and the international company. But the North American management actually said something about that and said, well, wait a minute, maybe we don't, we want to think about this. 
So what we did is we went down and we a couple of a bunch of employees called us and we found out that there was real questions about how the cards got signed and the validity of the cards. You know, interestingly enough, those cards have a shelf life, much like the uh, you know the the vegetables at your grocery store. They can right. only last for a certain amount of time. And we found out based on interviews with some clients down there that these cards were given as a as a reward for signing the card, you got amusement park tickets to a, you know, to take your family to the amusement mm-hmm. park, and they were signed two two years ago, and so we we encouraged one of the employees to to circulate a dual uh, a petition saying I don't want to be in the UAW, and they got six hundred and I think eight signatures, which That's basically right. the dual card doctrine contested the cards and said, wait a minute, we got to have an election now because you these cards. You know, anyone who signed the petition and then signed a card has been invalidated because of the dual card doctrine um, in union certification elections, and they had the election. And, of course, despite the fact that the UAW said we've got a majority and maybe the European management said, yeah, well, no problem, let's do it, when the workers actually got behind the curtain, what happened? You know the story, Peter. Yep. I mean, they voted against unionization. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I forgot about the dual purpose cards part. So – Yeah. That pre-recognitional bargaining, I believe, is still part, it's still lawful to do. Like if a yeah. an employer, if a union wants to sell out workers, it can go to an employer and say, hey, you can keep your wages the same, you know, just give us union dues, let us get the card signed, and we have a sweetheart deal, right? Yeah. Well, that's right. And, you know, that goes back to uh, this name, uh, maybe you'll remember this name too, Rosemary Collier. I don't know if you remember that name. She was at the NLRB, and when when Saturn, when the Saturn Automotive Plant was being shifted down to Spring Hill, Tennessee, which is a right-to-work state, there was an issue where the UAW and I, who who owned Saturn was it GM? GM. I don't know. Yeah, GM. GM. Yeah, they had pre-hire bargaining before any employee had ever been hired. There was already a labor agreement in place, and right. we argued on behalf, we litigated on behalf of a Saturn employee that was going to be down there, and Rosemary Collier said, "No, perfectly fine." Pre-recognition bargaining is perfectly fine, and uh, we're going to allow to do it. Now, Peter, you know in the construction industry, that happens all the time. You you get that, yeah. and, and they try to convert to a 9A formal union argument now. That's happening under the NLRB now, by the way. You will get a formal unionization. You'll have a pre-hire agreement with no employees. You complete you, – as you work through the construction project, all of a sudden you says, you know what? We're just going to be the union, and we're going to represent everybody. No vote, no fuss, no muss. Everybody's in the union. It's converted to a regular union, even though there's been no vote, no cards, no nothing in the construction industry. It's really radical what's going on at the NLRB. But you're right. So getting back to getting back to where the NLRB is going now, you know, we won. We, well, we didn't win. The NLRB did rulemaking over the last four years, and I think it was 2020. They came out with a rule that it was called the Election Protection Act, and what they said was that we're not going to let ULPs block decertification election anymore. We're going to conduct, we're going to have the votes. We're going to at least let the workers vote. We may impound the votes pending, you know, adjudication of ULPs and anything that happens, but we're going to let them vote and then we'll count the votes and then we'll deal with the unfair labor practice charges after it's over to see if it's, you know, if it makes a difference. That was the standard. That immediately is getting struck down. In fact, we have a case right now where they did not apply this standard, and actually, we won another case back in, I don't know, an NLRB case, I want to say, I'm getting old enough, Peter, now that I get five years on either side of an event, my standard deviation (laughs) is, so this could have happened within a 10-year window. I'm going to say 2010, that means it could happen in 2000. It was a case called St. Gobain's, and we argued on behalf of the employees at St. Gobain's, which is a manufacturer up in Connecticut, I believe, or Rhode Island, and what what we argued was that 
a, a, a standard operating procedure of the unions following a ULP can't block an election. There has to be a causal nexus between the ULP and the election. So if there's if there's all a bunch of other stuff going on already in the workplace where the employer has done, you know, didn't fill up the Coke machine on time or something like that, you know, or the lights went out in the in the in the on the work floor and they hadn't been replaced or the parking lot hadn't gotten paid, those ULPs would be applied and block an election. And so what St. Gobain said, the NLRB said there is what we're gonna have what we call a St. Gobain hearing that says, is there a causal nexus between this ULP that you filed to block a decertification election, or is it just something you're doing as a standard operating procedure? And right now, this NLRB just did one in on behalf of some clients that we had up in the Mayo, uh, was it, I think it was the Mayo Clinic. Um, yeah, yeah, it was the Mayo Clinic with nurses up there. They just said, we're not going to have any causal nexus hearing. We don't care what the ULP is about or whether it occurred on any other issue that doesn't have anything to do with the We're just going to say that there's a ULP, we're going to block the election. Actually, it was a construction company called Reith Riley up in uh, in Minnesota, uh, or not Minnesota, but Wisconsin, Michigan. They we had the vote in October 2020. Everybody voted, and they ruled that 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 the blocking charges, the the votes were impounded. The blocking charges were legit, even though they had nothing to do. They threw the ballots in the trash, Peter, last hmm. week after this election protection act said we got we should count the votes, and so that's where we're headed. They're not even going to count the votes anymore for decertification. In fact, decertification is going to be virtually impossible. One thing that's interesting, though, decertification elections from 20 to 21 increased by, I think, 13 or 14 percent. We were involved in 65 different RD petitions back last year, 65. No one talks about that. We talk about Amazon. We talk about Starbucks. But we don't talk about when unions, when workers are trying to get out of unions and how difficult it is, first and foremost. But then we don't talk about it when they do and why they do. But there's a, a lot of action on the decertification side and a growing amount of action on the decertification side. All right. So right here's now. here's a question um, about this. If I'm an employee or I'm with a group of employees, we've been union represented for a number of years. It's, it was already hard to get rid of a union once you're in because you've got the yep. election bar, you've got the contract bar. So at the end of a three-year contract, there's a 30-day window that opens up where I and my colleagues can go get enough signatures to petition, which is 30%, to petition the National Labor Relations Board to hold an election to decertify the union. Now, in the old days, and this is where I'm getting to the question, typically a union, because management cannot be involved in this process, typically unions would file blocking charges to block the holding of the election for however long the labor board takes to litigate it, right? hold hearings and adjudicate if they need to. So now what is happening with those charges? Are we going back to that standard? Or when you say they're throwing away the ballots, like, is that in all cases or just in just ones that have blocking charges? We think that's that's where they're headed. They're going to go back to rulemaking. They just announced it last week. They're going to go back to rulemaking, and they're going to overturn this Election Protection Act rule that was promulgated under the Trump administration. We're going back to the old standard, Peter, where, look, I'm sorry, ULP is going to block the election. We're not going to count any votes. We're not going to send out any ballots. We're not going to have an in-shop vote at all. We're going to adjudicate the ULPs, and and you said it right. It can take a month. It could take a year. It could take four years to get through the ULPs, and during that time, the contract bar window may have opened and closed, and, you know, it's crazy how all this has worked. They're going back. They're going to take away that protection. You know, if you think about the Mount Air case, 
we represented the the 800 employees at a poultry plant, a, a, a parsley plant in Delaware. Yeah, that was recently. Mount Air. Yeah, remember that. Um, originally, when the workers tried to file for a decertification, they were blocked by the contract bar. We argued that the union security clause in the contract was illegal. It went into effect immediately upon the contract's support, and you have to have that 30-day window. You know, you, within 30 days, you have to indicate your membership and union dues and all that stuff. But it went into effect immediately. The regional director up there said, that's an illegal contract. Contract bar does not apply. Let's vote. The union immediately files unfair labor practice charges, all kinds of things go on. We challenge the contract bar there saying, look, if you're going to if you're going to throw this out, you're going to delay the election even though the regional directors agreed that an illegal contract clause invalidates the contract bar, meaning it doesn't apply now. Let's have a vote. These 800 workers went to go vote, you know, and the NLRB comes back and says, "Well, wait a minute, maybe we made a mistake and, you know, the contract bar is not something we're going to do." And this is the Trump board. This is this is uh, you know, Ring and, and Emmanuel and Kaplan. These guys mm -hmm. are, like, just embarrassing, I mean, how bad they were um, and not pulling the trigger. We had lots of cases where they said, well, we agree with the with the foundation attorneys on behalf of these employees, but it's not the case where we want to make the decision that for everybody. Uh, you know, it was just an embarrassing thing. It was very, very, very frustrating. But then again, you understand all how frustrating yeah. this all could be. Um, but anyway, so, you know, where they're going now is they're going to go back and say the ULP will block any forward progress when it comes to elections, as opposed to saying, let's let the workers vote. We, the petition is valid. They've got the requisite number of signatures. There may be ULP charges. We ought to have a St. Cobain hearing at least to make sure that there's a causal nexus between the ULP and the decertification, because in some cases, the employer may not even know the decertification is underway. I you know, you know better than I do because you've been on the shop floor and been involved in these these things. But they want to go back to we're not even going to have an election until we can decipher whether or not the employer has committed an unfair labor practice, no matter what it looks like. That's where they're going back to as opposed to where they were headed under Peter Robb and the NLRB at the time with the rulemaking as it related to the Election Protection Act saying, let's count the votes. Let's have the election. Let's count the votes. We'll decide what happens after the election, you know, after we count the votes, but let's count them. That makes sense to me, and they're going to head – they're heading 180 degrees away from that again, Peter, where it probably is likely that votes won't be counted, and they will be thrown in the, in the trash can because the board will rule, oh, my gosh, how unbelievably unbelievable was this employer in these unfair labor practice charges, even though they had nothing to do with, with the decertification election. Well, it's a really interesting time. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of employees don't understand that you know when you're trying to kick out a union, and the union you know you get enough signatures, you go to the board, you file a petition, the union catches wind. Well, if you're a union member, you can also be put on trial for that because you're violating your union rules. But then on top of that, when they filed the blocking charges, they blocked your right to vote for six, eight, ten months, whatever, and that whole time they're campaigning to basically keep the union. So if by chance you get the opportunity to vote, the likelihood of winning that is just is much more diminished, which is the whole strategy of blocking charges. Exactly. And then and then probably because of all that litigation that's going on, you miss the 30-day window that you mentioned, 90 days before the expiration of the contract, 60 days. So now the next decertification election is blocked by another contract bar or another bar, successor bar, whatever bar. I mean, I think there's only one bar that's specifically mentioned in the National Labor Relations Act. All the other bars to, you know, to employee rights, activize, activating employee rights are, are creations of NLRB precedent and, uh, you know, kind of the meat on the bone of the 
the of our federal labor policy. It, it's getting crazy, and they are super aggressive. And I think they're super aggressive, Peter, because look, we've got a national right to work law for every government employee in the United States under the First Amendment, free speech protections for every government employee. We've passed five new right to work laws in the last 10 years. Um, you know, uh, they need they need Joe Biden in the White House. They absolutely need right. Joe Biden in the White House. They need Jennifer Abruzzo at the, at the, as the general counsel, and they need a majority at the NLRB for as long as they possibly can have it to hold on to this amazing privilege they've been granted going all the way back to the 1930s that put them as wards of the state. And the sword of Damocles hangs over organized labor if they can't control politics in Washington. They know it. We know it. Workers know it. Well, so – so we t- started touching on Joy Silk, and uh, which kind of opens the door to the PRO Act, although card check's not in the PRO Act. They're using Joy Silk kind of as the backdoor card check. Um, where do you see that going? Well, if, you, if you're reading uh, Bruzzo's briefs, I think it's the CMEX or CMEX C-Mex uh, yeah. case. Yeah, yeah. CMEX case. I mean, that is a, that is a uh, magnum opus when it comes. I mean, you've got you to gotta, uh, overturn five NLRB precedents to get one thing done. And, you know, this notion, and Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, but this, you know, Joy Silk was, what, 1949 NLRB yep. decision. Yeah. And, and what it, the way I say it, this, so let's say Jennifer Abruzzo is sitting outside of a Starbucks one day down in DuPont Circle before she goes to work. And Starbucks has 14 employees that all show up that day, even though five of them are on the clock, and 12 of them walk out in front with signs saying Starbucks unfair. Under her view of the National Labor Relations Act, that showing of, four, of 12 of the 14 workers coming out, standing out front for a one-hour protest, is enough for her to say, hey, the union's certified. Unless you have a good faith doubt about why you shouldn't be recognizing the union, that's we're going to say that's fair enough. That's evidence enough for me that these workers want a union, and we're going to certify that union as the bargaining agent. You're going to have to negotiate with them. That's Joyce Silk. That's Joyce Silk. That's kind of that whole paradigm of saying the employer should have no say in this, you know, any showing, whether it be a strike or a labor action or, you know, whatever it is that the employees can show that they want to be in a union is enough for the NLRB under the Joy Silk Doctrine. I mean, Gissel fixed that in, what, 1969 or something Mm -hmm. like that, I think it was. It didn't really even fix it. It just said, you know, look, we believe that the best way to to determine whether or not uh, workers want to be in the union is a secret ballot election, and the employer ought to have the right to say, I want one. That's basically where the, that's what the standard we operate under now, right? I mean, the employer can accept the cards today, and he can say, "I want to negotiate with the union right now." But right. he can also say, "You know what? I think my employees need to vote on this, and I want a secret ballot election." And when you look at the transcript of the Gissel dis- discussion in front of the Supreme Court, it's very obvious that the court was like, "Wait a minute, you know, what are we trying to do here? Shouldn't they get a chance to vote? Shouldn't the employer be able to say that?" You know, yeah, maybe we should have a vote. We think we ought to be able to test the integrity of the cards. We're not sure how they got them, where they came from, who signed them, whether they're in the bargaining unit or not. You know, how do we check that? Well, the best way to do that, and I think the courts agree, federal courts, U.S. Supreme Court, the best way is a secret ballot election. Doesn't that make sense? So so here's one of the things that has always bothered me about this process, Um so in order for a union to have an election or to get card checked, they have to sign people up. Typically, um, you know, their authorization cards. Now it's electronic authorizations. But they're legally allowed to mislead people into what they're signing. 
And there's no, and there's a whole body of NLRB case law in terms of in going back to Sherlington supermarket back in the 1950s. And nobody has ever challenged that. There's never been a truth and organizing act that's been, and I keep saying this, I've been saying this for over a decade, you know, all we need is a truth and organizing act. You know, people sign up thinking they're going to get more money, better benefits and all that stuff because the unions are legally allowed to make promises. Companies are not, which makes sense on that side of it. But when you have people being misled and now with, you know, we have a much more diverse population where English may be a second language and you've got employees being suckered into signing something, they have no idea what the ramifications are. There's no check and balance in that system. And so then when you move to card check, where you've got people who've been misled into signing whatever they've signed, either electronically or through the authorization cards, they get unionized. They have no idea what they're getting into or why all of a sudden they have dues coming out of their paychecks. <clears throat> and it, yeah. <laughs> or initiation fees too, Peter, right. in Starbucks case. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's so tilted. And, and of course the unions are going to say it's tilted the other way because employers do this and that. But it's, you know, I've been on both sides of it. And I understand the arguments, but when it comes down to signing new workers up, they don't even give them their constitution, the union constitution, which, you know, you're going to be a union member. You just signed something. You don't know what you signed, but you haven't even gotten a union constitution to know the rules that you break until after you've broken them. Yeah. yeah. Right. We're representing a couple of King Supers employees that crossed the picket line up in I Colorado. Yeah, we got that. You know, I think during the cat, one of the Caterpillar strikes, we ended up representing, I don't know, there was a job action at a Caterpillar facility. We ended up representing, I don't know, 10 or 15 guys that got fined $40,000 each for crossing right. the picket line. Yeah, I remember yeah. that case. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they, they have no idea what they're getting into. And you're right about that. They There is no, there is no penalty for union officials saying whatever they want. And, and Peter, look, I have not been a union organizer. Um, I'm going to make that public pronouncement. And so union officials will probably quote me on this. Look, he's not a union organizer. He's a union buster or whatever he, they call us these days. But, you know, look, you when you were organized, you had a chance to meet with workers during the 16 hours they weren't on the job. I mean, I know they sleep sometimes, those workers. Well, I, they like I wasn't an organizer. I was a mobilization coordinator, but and then okay. chief steward and all the other stuff. But I, Tell I me how that works. I mean, you go to the bowling alley and you know there's a bowling team and there are five guys that are union guys and they they're can you go see them there and talk about unionization? Sure. Yeah. Can you yeah. go to the softball game and talk to them about unionization? Sure. Somehow yeah. when an employer has the employee on in their facility for during the eight hours they pay them for, somehow it's gonna be in the very near future, probably illegal for the employer to talk about it. And the argument is we have no access to those employees like the employer does. Well, if right. I, my math is correct, if my math is correct, 24 hours in a day, eight of it's working, that leaves 16 left for other activities by these by organizers, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know. Um, seems to me it uh, it's kind of one-sided even to this day when it comes to those types of things. Oh, and with social media these days, you've got, you can, and this is the old term ambush elections, just a decade old. Yeah. You know, you can be underground for months and months and months and get all the support you need and then file your petition or present your evidence that you've got, you know, majority support. And, yeah. and the That's employer has no counter to that. 
Right. And that's one of the problems with card check. And, and maybe this is too hypothetical to be believable, but l let's imagine we have a, a, a bargaining unit or we have a, a unit of 100 employees. The union goes out and gets 51 of the people to sign the card, and the other 49 have no idea what's happening or who these people are, and those cards are presented to the, to the employer. And under a card check regime, the 49 people that had no idea what was going on are now in the union. I mean, that's your, that's your point. I mean, I had no idea what's happening here. Maybe I was a loner or not a social guy. And the next thing you know, oh, by the way, 150 bucks has been taken out of your paycheck for initiation fees. And now it's, you know, 40 bucks a pay period or a month or $50 a month for union dues. I mean, we haven't gotten it yet, Peter, but every year during this time when high school students go back and start to get their summer jobs at the grocery stores, we inevitably filed the case where the first paycheck is guess how much? Yeah. Two zero. cents. Yeah. It's zero. Right. Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> they wonder why their parents call and say, my son worked for two weeks and got paid zero. What happened? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that hypothetical is not that hypothetical because it, it happens all the time now, but it happens at least you have an election so that the other 49 people um, can at least verify whether or not, you know, they want a union, they have an election, they can decide. Yeah. But it's, you know, frankly, it's one of those things that, um, again, the pendulum may swing. So, you know, 2024 is around the corner, may swing back, but it's going to be interesting. So. Yeah, Peter, you know, as I as you kind of bring this close, I know I'm looking at my clock and, and I could probably we could probably talk for a little while longer, I suspect. But I think you have limitations. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. I, I don't. But, you know, but I've been around labor law for what, 30, what, 35, 36 years now. I've been working at right to work in one capacity or another, starting out at the, you know, correcting address labels on letters uh, and then, you know, working my way through. I, I think the Peter principles at work, frankly, and right to work, I just hung around and next thing you know, I get a chance to talk to you about that stuff like this. But, <laughs> you know, I, it, labor law has turned out to be a battle of two titans. It's big business and big labor. And the one part of it that's left out of the equation is the employee. They get beat up at the NLRB. They get up and get beat up in the courts because they don't have attorneys and don't have resources to litigate or find their way. What, what, what's an what's a ULP? Why aren't we having an election? What we try to get an election? What what happened to our election? You know they don't have lawyers, but but organized labor understands it's their it's their business model, it's their survival. And big businesses out there were their attorneys. They want to delay things. And, you know, if you read Section 7 of the National Labor Relations Act, that flowery language in the preamble that, you know, workers have all these rights to bargain and mutual association and the right to do this and the right to do that. That is so – those words are so empty when you get into the, 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 the nitty-gritty of labor policy. And you got big business on one side and you got big labor on the other, and they are crushing each other in court. And depending to your point, you say, you know, every, the pendulum swings every four to eight years. And the one party that's left out is the individual worker. Right. And that's the mission of the Right to Work Foundation, giving a voice and giving power to those individual workers when they want to exercise their rights, whether it be First Amendment rights or just uh, religious rights or economic rights or philosophical rights, whatever they are, their ability to say no is something that we we have made some progress over the years. There's still a lot of work to do, as you know. Well, I'll tell you, there's a there's a fourth party that's kind of left out of this, and this is the small businesses, the entrepreneurs. Yes. You know, they get four or five yep. employees, um, and it's, you know, a union's, I shouldn't say a union, unions will sometimes target the small businesses purposely, or they'll get a call from a small business employee, you know, somebody who's employed by a small business, and 
the labor costs going up, not even just labor costs, but just the unionization costs, the having to hire labor lawyers and doing all of that, that can drive a small business out of business really quickly. And, you know, it, it's whether or not they can weather the storm. They don't, you know, I've had conversations with a couple of people about, you know, maybe the, the National Labor Relations Act, which was enacted in 1935, and they, they had specific um, size employers that were legislated in, maybe that's got to be revisited, you know, 25 yeah. or more employers or, or employees or yeah. 15 or more or whatever. Because some of the and a revenue other... component too. Wasn't yeah. there a revenue component? Yeah. yeah. That has not been adjusted since 1935 or 1937 right. or whatever. Right. Yeah. 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 So, well, Mark Mix, tell the tell the listeners where they can find you, and I'll I'll post the links as well. So, okay, they can find us on that amazing internet at www.nrtw.org. That's the foundation's website, and what they can find there is they can find contact information to talk to a labor attorney for free about their issues in the workplace. Um, obviously, we get calls about all kinds of employment law, and we, but we do a very narrow, very focused litigation program on, on forced unionism, compulsory unionism. They can find out frequently asked questions. They can learn about our work and, and hear some uh, uh, plaintiffs and clients of ours talk about what happened in the court and how they're, you know, how working with the foundation helped them. And if they were interested in legislation, what's going on in their state or in Congress as it relates to labor policy, we track legislation in all 50 states. And you can go on a map and click on the committee's website, which is nrtwc, nrtwc.org. You can find out what's happening legislatively, whether it be in your state or in Congress as it relates to uh, bills to either give individual workers more freedom or to give union officials, unfortunately, more power. We track all of it. We uh, we keep track of it. You can find information there about legislation that's pending there. And so nrtw.org for your legal rights, nrtwc.org for your legislative information. Right. Hey, before I let you go, um, let me ask you one quick question. I saw an article or might have been a press release recently about the SEIU Healthcare Michigan corruption. What was that all about? Yeah. Um, Sorry, that, that I, I, I wanted to touch on that earlier, and I forgot all about it, and I just I was just scanning, yeah. scanning that. Well, we had we had a case that we were litigating up there, and uh, and all of a sudden the SEIU walks in and takes over the uh, the local union. It, it just you know these type of things it happened in Pennsylvania just recently with the AFL-CIO. I mean, the new the new AFL-CIO president wouldn't answer questions about why Frank Snyder wasn't going to be the president of the Pennsylvania AFL-CIO, mm. and no report was ever released. All of a sudden, a week before his coronation as president, all of a sudden, look, you're out. Frank and someone else didn't, but no one knows what happened. They talked about, you know, workplace stuff, but I think it was financial mismanagement up with the SEIU. And, you know, we think the employees ought to know about what's going on up there as opposed to why did you take over this local union? Why did you take the assets? Why did you do all these things, which, you know, the big unions can do. If you read the constitutions of these unions, I think these guys in Washington have unique powers when it comes to locals. We learned that in the UAW down in region, mm -hmm. whatever it was in St. Louis and, you know, 19 states. But I think it was financial corruption up there too. Um, I don't have that press release in front of me here, Peter, but yeah, I mean, yeah, we, I, I just, I saw it and I was like, what's this going on with the SEIU up in Michigan? And yeah, it has something to do with corruption. I just wasn't sure what was behind it. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's, there's another, um, there's another case you guys were involved in too. I I don't know. I'm, I've taken up enough of your time. 
But oh no, no, no! I love talking about the case. I, I just we have so many of them, and, yeah, and again, as I mentioned, my, my, my standard deviation is ten years, five years on either side of the event. <laughs> right. So, uh, but no, oh, one of the I, things that comes out is the corruption. I mean, you know, if you're if the UAW is trying to organize your workplace right now, why shouldn't you know that fourteen of their top executives are in prison today right. for union corruption? Why shouldn't you know that? You should. <laughs> yeah. Hey, real quickly. Um, and I have not gotten an answer on this, but you may recall when Craig Becker, who is the former general counsel of the SEIU, went to the National Labor Relations Board and he said he would recuse himself of SEIU related suits or, or cases, right? Yeah. And then promptly didn't. And you just touched on this a second ago where the, the international or the national union has a lot of power over the locals. And Becker, like, reneged on his recusal promise. You yep. recall that? Yeah, I think we had 21 cases where the SEIU was involved when he was doing some litigation for them. And he, he, he refused to recuse himself in any of our cases relating to that. But you're exactly right. I mean, what, how does Jennifer Abruzzo decide or be involved in a, in a case that involves the Communication Workers of America? They were her last employer, whether it be a local union or the international. She has no business being involved in any of those cases, really. And, she, and you know, the, the one thing that happens is, you know, a man, Bill Emanuel recused himself from what, 100? 164 because they shamed him right you remember yeah oh yeah so <laughs> so here's a related question to this and i don't know that you would have the answer but i've i've wondered about this and so in region 13 of the national labor relations board in chicago jennifer bruzo just appointed a new regional director who is a labor side attorney just came out of private practice representing all kinds of different attorneys, or I'm sorry, different unions as her clients, including doing training for them. And she's going to be hearing cases involving, I would assume, involving some of those unions. Does the regional director level have to recuse herself or himself? Well, I wish I could give you a definitive answer, but we're going to find out. Now that you gave me a hint, we're going to, I'm going to ask that question if we've got cases in that region. Yeah, I'm posing that rhetorically because, you know, if she's got a decent sized law practice and she's been representing, you know, a dozen or two dozen unions over the years, does that, how can she rule neutrally according to the law well, involving her former clients? That's a legitimate question. And when it came to Bill Emanuel, you remember he was working for a big law firm on the West Coast, and they mm-hmm. made him they made the the firm list national cases and any cases that the big firm was involved in, he had to be out of, even though he had nothing to do with the cases. Probably didn't even know about the cases, frankly. Right. Uh, that standard, and you know, it just shows you how effective the other side can be. I mean, they really they get it, they get it. And I, the fact that you you came from both sides means you have probably double the intelligence quotient of, of everybody in this game. So, I just know how both um, sides play. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's, well, that's, that's how, that's how you, uh, you win, right? You know how both sides play. Yeah. So I, I know you're not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, but it's one that the lawyer should answer. <laughs> so, or at, at I'll least look into it. On, on Tuesday <laughs> afternoon, Peter, I, I will. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll have an answer for you. Well, Mark Mix, thank you so much for coming on Labor Relations Radio. It's fun. 
Peter, my, my pleasure and, and a privilege to talk with you about this. And, you know, I know that you've got the best interest of employees and, and kind of the, the First Amendment protections of protecting individual rights in mind, and so do we. And that's such an important part of this debate. And we kind of look over it, we glance over it because of the, the on-the-ground everyday activities that go on around it. But there's a bigger issue here. Should someone be forced to pay dues or fees to a private organization in order to work in America? I say no. 80% of Americans say no, but yet we still got a whole lot of fighting to do to get well, that right. Yeah, and on okay. the flip side to that, even if I'm a union rep, do I want people yeah. that resent me? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> as you said, 40% of your 40 to 45% of your customer base, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, on either side of whatever the issue is. Yeah, yeah. you're going to have disagreements. Should you even be in that business? So, well, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, Peter. Take care. Thanks. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Mark Mix with the National Right to Work Foundation. And as I said at the outset, we're living in a very fascinating time. And just as we post union-related articles uh, from unions, their press releases, etc., at laborunionnews.com, we also post the press releases from National Right to Work Foundation. And they do have a lot of interesting stuff going on. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you have any questions or comments, you can leave them under the comment section. We're going to be leaving some links to National Right to Work, some of their cases, etc. Um, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.